Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsolla.pro slash AOIAAS. Secure your digital world in physical form with IM8Bit. For over 15 years, IM8Bit has been crafting premium expansions of the industry's best games, from pioneering community experiences for Epic's Fortnite World Cup to bringing over 100 award-winning soundtracks from breakout hits like Untitled Goose Game and Disco Elysium to vinyl, and bringing the Ori sequel to Switch. Their passion for artistry and gaming fuels them, whether they're interpreting beloved brands from a new point of view or extending the mythology of another game, perhaps one you're developing. What's the IM8Bit difference? Their collectibles are premium, but for IM8Bit, they're personal too. See for yourself at im8bit.com. Hey everyone, I'm Trent Custers, co-founder and studio director of League of Geeks, and this is The Game Maker's Notebook. Today I've had the pleasure of talking with Ben Gabbard and David Adams of Gunfire Games. Now Gunfire Games are responsible for the critically acclaimed and commercial success this year, Remnant 2, and of course its predecessor, Remnant. The Dark Souls with guns, looter shooter with incredible procedural generation, which we talk about, about in this episode. But of course we kick it off talking about how these two got into games. And funnily enough, they were childhood friends making and designing their own board games and pen and paper games that then in their 1920s actually made their own video game that they ended up getting published, got a kickstart there. David went on to found Vigil as well, the studio behind Darksiders 1, Darksiders 2, incredible successes at their time, action adventure, you know, absolute institutions. We talk about the time at Vigil. Then we also talk about the uncomfortable period around THQ's bankruptcy. And, you know, I think in the backdrop right now of a lot of layoffs in the industry and everything is how do we then what did it feel like to go through that when a parent company collapses and having to say goodbye to a bunch of teammates that you've worked on and what you've built up? We then talk about David's next studio and Ben coming together to make gunfire games and rising from the ashes there. We talk about how Facebook and Oculus gave them their the little the kindling that started the started the studio with Kronos, their original game and a game that they did work for hire before that as well. We talk about Remnant One, how that came about, how you know, how an original IP like that with such ambitions comes about in a studio and how a team that had stuck together and worked together through all of these studios and all these different games um, can create something like that. We then naturally talk about Remnant 2. We talk about the design of boss fights. We talk about what makes great procedural generation. And there's just a lot of chatter in here about you know, what does make a great team and what it, what it means to have people who have worked together for so long and what that brings to development. It's a wonderful story. David and Ben have had an incredible career within the industry and have left a number of fantastic titles um, in their wake. And obviously Remnant 2 is an incredible game that definitely deserves being dug into on this level. So if, whether you're playing the game or not, there's a lot in here for every developer and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. 
The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Ben, David, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, good to be here. Yep. No doubt, no doubt. I mean, I just, you know, I was logged on and all the Texas Texas talk was happening with all the <laughs> Mexican food chatter and everything. So I'm jealous that I missed a little bit of preamble, but um, we've got a phenomenal game to talk about here. But, you know, you two have quite a storied history as, as well in video games itself. And obviously Remnant 2 being the second game in the series as well. And we've got a bit to get through. So what? Let, let's start where we always do with the Game Maker's Notebook. And the question is, what was the first time that you remember in your lives, like that moment where games sort of caught you? So, you know, maybe not the first time you played it, but the earliest memory of it having like a, a serious impact on your, on your on our like small child brains, you know, changing them, synapses firing. Why don't you start, Ben? Oh, oh okay. Goodness. Um, you know, being rather older, uh, I think that, you know, we always used to play games as a uh, like just make up our own games in our house you know with uh, my two brothers uh, I've known Dave for quite a number of years probably what are we at like 40 plus years so he nice. kind of grew up with us in terms of uh, being young and hmm. uh, we would just make up games play games you know just in general and as technology started advancing it just seemed to be a natural evolution for us to just be you know involved in that kind of media um, whether it was, you know, the Atari 2600 when it first came out, and we were renting that console to bring in mm -hmm. and play some games, and then uh, as Nintendo, you know, launched and all the other kind of consoles as that as it came about, and then PC obviously coming online as well during that time frame, where it was DOS and then into Windows, and so I think from from my perspective, it's always been something we've always gathered around, played board games, and it was yeah. just a natural extension of what we already were doing. Uh, in this new medium and it was easier to set up because everything was set up and you're like, ah, cool. That's awesome. I don't have to, do, I don't have to put everything together, put it down. And, you know, so I think from that perspective, that was probably my first memories of it, you know, playing with the, with my brothers and so family you, and friends. And when you say like making your own games, I'm assuming naturally you mean on the computer, right? Like programming your own games as well. Or do you mean like running around or board games or Running around with board games, just coming yeah. up with rule sets, just different things. You know, we you're big game workshop fans back in the day. You know, oh, with some awesome, of the things yeah. that they were coming out with, and just different role playing adventures. And and you oh, get yeah. you just you know get Lego guys or Lego blocks, and you come up with games and just create rule sets for that, and just just on the board. You know, again yeah. because computers weren't very prevalent at the time, and so mm. you know that was rare to have somebody with a PC in their house that would be coding and and doing those kind of things at that. And then as it yeah, got introduced. Um, the, you know, obviously that started, you know, manifesting itself. And then we started seeing trade wars and these BBS type of games and those type of elements yeah. coming online that were introduced, at least to us. And then you were like, wow, you know, you can get some floppy disk and put this in. You're playing the first Sierra games and you're, you're starting to learn, you know, police quest and all these other kind of things. And, you know, and then they would have a 1-800 number to call for hints and stuff. So it was kind of, <laughs> it was kind of interesting to just see the dynamics in that roll out. And I think, you know, being on that level back in the, you know, early, early 80s or, you know, in the, I'm going to date myself here or in the, you know, the early <laughs> 70s, 80s. And, and that's where gaming kind of evolved for, for me, at least in terms that's of uh, that passion and seeing that, that result. 
I still remember um, one of the big ass kickings that I received from my parents was from a Nintendo hotline number that I used to call religiously. I, you know, it only lasted a month until the telephone bill came in and I was out. That's, that's exactly what would happen. And you'd be like, oh, man. So, <laughs> so quite Dave, interesting. You're, um, am I hearing right? You two are childhood friends? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think Amazing. I, I was originally friends with his brother in like third yeah. grade. I think what yeah, I was saying. Yeah, got to be, got to be uh, but we've known each other since then, for sure. Yeah, like, yeah absolutely. Uh, so you you recall these these uh these early game yes, making days, right? Yeah, around? there's a lot of games. I, I know I know for me personally, like the first game I remember is Pitfall. Only right. because I can't remember yeah. some family friend had an Atari Twenty Six Hundred, and we yep. went to their house, and I was just like, this. I mean, I think I played like Pong games before that. Yeah, you know, cool. Yeah. Games with a little ball bounce. I know I'm going to sound really old for a minute. <laughs> That's this really is a safe space. We, yeah, we're anyway, totally, so, I was old as um, I remember playing Pitfall and like I would always just be so excited to go back to the house just literally just to play Pitfall. And then at some point I realized there were other games. I never had an Atari 2600. The first yeah. system I had was a, the NES, but like I think that was the first thing that got me intrigued. Do you um, remember what it but, was? Was it the sense of adventure in Pitfall that wasn't there for like say a Pong or something like that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I like that. Like, I like the theme of Pitfall. I like what you were doing. Obviously, you know, in that era, I was a huge fan of Indiana Jones and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, naturally. I think it just like ticked a lot of boxes for me. And then, yeah. I think for me personally, like, I always, I was always interested in like making games. I remember playing Final Fantasy on the NES, and yeah, it like it came with this foldout with like all the sprites for all the characters. Oh wow! And I realized. This is before I knew anything about computers. I'm like, oh, they're all just little dots. So I like, <laughs> at some point, my dad got me an 8086 and I like made my own paint program just so I could make all the stupid Final Fantasy sprites, which is dumb because there probably were already paint programs. I don't know, but I didn't know I was a kid. So. <laughs> but I like this thing where you like hit an arrow key to go to a spot and then you like hit a space bar to, and then you hit another key to bring up the color wheel to pick a color. And I like <laughs> colored in all the stupid Final Fantasy sprites one by one out of that but yeah i've always been interested in like how things work so i love that child or um childhood like wizard of oz man behind the curtain moment of like it's all just dots well i think you had arcades growing up right that you would go yeah. and now all of a sudden that technology was being here in your house and you're yeah, like amazing oh my gosh this is amazing and i'm not paying quarters for it it's like it, yeah. i can always I, I can just consume it as we're going along so i think that was one of the you know, just that accessibility really just stimulated a lot of neurons in your heads to say, hey, this is pretty cool. Yeah. So obviously we've got the board game making, you know, like for, for fun times with your pals when you're a kid. So we've got the, you know, making your own dots and, you know, your own sprites and coloring in and stuff like that. When was the first time, you know, was it high school? Was it college? Like that the two of you kind of figured out that, you know, individually or whatever it may be, that this was something that you did want to do that this could be a career for you dave um i don't know i made a tunnel i made like three text adventures i made you were in some it. weird i don't know if you remember like there used to be these old 2d games that were kind of 3d but like the the view would kind of scroll by when you moved yes like yes. Whoosh, in blocks yes. <laughs> yeah like yeah, i yeah. made one of those which was like okay. a total pain in the ass because it was all like 2d sprites there wasn't actual 3d at all it was just like yeah. 2d images that moved <laughs> and simulated three so i made like 15 percent of like 100 different games after i got that computer from my dad 
because I would just like, oh, that's cool. Oh, how I'd play Ultima and I'd be like, oh, Fog of War. That's cool. Let me do Fog of War. So I'll make a little 2D overworld game with Fog of War. I'll do this or I'll do that. Amazing. Uh, and how and old then, were you at this time, Dave? I'm trying to remember when I got I probably got it when I was like, maybe, I don't know. I can't remember. It was so too long. Whatever they do, like maybe 11 or 12, 10 to 12, somewhere yeah, in that right, okay. Yeah. You're right into it early. Young on. enough that I got in trouble and it got taken away from me. That's all I remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then um, in college, actually, uh, me and Ben and his brother, uh, we there was this board game we loved called uh, Dungeon Bowl. Mm-hmm. And it was like Blood Bowl. A lot of people prior to Blood Bowl, which is a game for yep. shopping, which is like fantasy football. Yeah. Uh, and Dungeon Bowl was like that in a dungeon. But we like modded the crap out of that game. Like we made it three player and we added like all these weird mechanics. And it was, it played completely different than the actual official Dungeon Bowl game. But we yeah. like, we loved it so much. We're like, hey, let's make a computer game version of this. So Thank that you. was like the first, first game um, I or I get Ben also actually finished, which was called Crush Deluxe. <laughs> what was it called? Crush Deluxe? It was called Crush Deluxe. It even got amazing. published by Mega Media. I think we got like published? 50 grand for it. Yeah, it was which amazing. Ways. Yeah. <laughs> That's so like, great. And what, so, all right, Ben, fill me in. Like, were you guys studying computer engineering at college or what were you actually doing at college whilst this was all happening? Again, I think, I think at the time, since I was a little older, I was working. Dave yeah. was going to school. My yeah. brother was going to school and we were sitting here thinking, hey, we, we came together and again, we were playing this board game. And as yeah. I said, the impetus of the computers and being able to do this and, and seeing it, there was an opportunity for us to say, hey, what if we did this? There's shareware out there. We could do these kind of things that yeah. uh, it would be an interesting, you know, you're young and you, you don't, you're naive and you're like, hey, let's just go about and do it, you know, make it a, 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 a let's go and try it. And so we, we went to an E3 when it used to be in the George Dome. Uh, to sell our product, you know, we were out there yeah. and we 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 made uh, business cards on the fly there in Atlanta. To, okay, we got business cards. We got our own did little Stone Jackal Studios little company name. Or we did have a little company yeah. name. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. We we went down there and you're you're like, oh, this is so cool, you know. And we're we're showcasing this, and we uh, I think from that perspective, that's where we we just said, let's just do this because we've always been interested in this game. We've always been, yeah. you know, these type of things and. Let's grow from that. And that was the, the first time that we had done that. And I had to, what was it? 90, God, 93, uh, 94, Doom something like out. that. That's all. Yeah. They were announcing it, Doom 3 at E3. Windows yeah. 3.1. It was they launched had on col- Windows they had colored lighting. That's, yeah. And, yeah. And the Nintendo <laughs> yep, yep, 64 yep. was at the yeah. Silicon Graphics booth. Oh, that yeah. hadn't come out yet. Yeah. Oh, wow. So they're there. So it was like uh, pretty, pretty old in terms of uh, when we did that. And then going from there, you know, as you're young, some of the, you know, things start happening. You know, I, I chose to get married. Yeah. Uh, we were doing some different things and, and while 50,000 sounds like a lot back then for two years worth of work, it didn't look like a viable thing to, to, to live with. And so yeah, right. I took a break from that cause I started a family. And so, you know, you got to make money, you got to do that. And then Dave started uh, a different avenue for him. So we kind of parted ways there for a little bit mm-hmm. and then came back together at vigil. Uh, Dave, you know, was working at vigil at the time and, 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 and uh, started Vigil up and said, hey, you know, we always stayed in contact. I go to E3, always all that kind of contact. And it was like, hey, you should try this, do a career move. And it was like, all right, man, let's do it. You know, do I continue on the road that I was going or do I go back to what we've always had a passion around? And so at that point, you know, we just made that decision and came back. And so that's that's kind of where we were at. That's kind of like the journey. Amazing. And so 
let's let's pause where we're at there, Ben, and sure. let's like travel back a little bit, Dave. So you, mate, I'm, I'm actually going to ask one question. Just I'm interested about the sure. publishing deal out of the, you know out of the out of the nineties that you did on this game. Was it? Did you make the game and then someone bought like the distribution yeah. rights? Or, yeah, well, right. So it was the game was the completely done. In fact, we'd released it shareware. So yep. like, yeah, we right. literally were like getting orders in the mail for the game. That's <laughs> that's what we were dealing with at the time. Like, yeah, I don't remember where right. we. I don't. I don't even remember how we posted yeah. it. I guess on the internet somewhere. I would just right. assume. Yeah. And then yeah, it was like, hey, here's the demo of the game. If you want the full game, um, send us this amount of money in the mail, and then we like. We found someone locally that would like print a CD with the game on it, with the logo on it, and we'd mail that shit out to them if they sent us the money. That's basically how it works. Awesome. What a, yeah. and like, you and guys then are at young, some like point, 20, it, 21, 23 at this time or something like that, right? Uh, yeah. No, younger. I was probably, I was yeah. in college. So I was 18, 19. 19. Yeah, 19, yeah. 22. Yeah, somewhere yeah, right, right around that type of frame frame. And then some um, guy named Raj, I can't remember his last name. From I Mega can't remember Media. his last name. Like yeah, he from called Mega us, like, I'll take the game from you guys. Publishing rights, fifty thousand dollars. We're like, yeah, that's an infinite amount of money. Let's that's do it. so crazy! Wow, <laughs> you imagine what if we did this? And then you're, you know, that that's 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 how that would work. Yeah, and yeah. we did like the the shareware version was smaller than the we did make a bigger version for Mega Media. Right. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we we added a bunch of features to flesh it out, and by right. a bunch, I mean I don't know. We worked on it three more months. Yeah, I'm not talking about right. like a massive amount of time, but. <laughs> So let's talk about these like diverging paths now. As Ben said, he went off and had some life things to do, get married and stuff like that. But Dave, you, you, you know, you've got this, you've all got this money, it's 50K. You've realized that it's not going to sustain you so much, but it sounds like you continued on with games before you then reconnected at some point. So what, what happened after, after it, after that game for you? Uh, yeah, I finished college. Um, I got a job at a startup for like a year. Yeah. Um, but I, I still worked on games. Like the problem is like I could do all the programming stuff, but I didn't really know anybody to do anything else. So I would like yeah, right. <laughs> try to cobble together my own art or whatever. Um, I also got married and had a kid. So, yeah. But at some point I was like, screw it. I want to make games bad enough. So I left the startup and started a company called, um, I'm trying to Realm Interactive. Realm Interactive. Yeah. Yeah. And so we worked on essentially, well, first we worked on a 3D version of Trade Wars, which is an old BBS game. Yeah, but that eventually became like a Diablo style MMO type game, right? Because um, like MMOs were really big back then. Yeah. Um, yeah. So worked on that for a while. Uh, it eventually came out. It was this game called Dungeon Runners. It went through like mm -hmm. many multiple lives before it actually came out as Dungeon Runners. Um, and then we got that company got acquired by NCSoft, which moved me to Austin. And then I left NCSoft to start Vigil Games. Yeah. So and that's. Probably Dark Souls. We made Dark Souls. It was like the first big game. Of course. Um, but yeah. it was kind of the same thing. Never worked on a console game. Never yeah. made an action adventure game. Never did. We're just, I was just like, fuck it. That's the kind of game I want to make. So that's awesome. we just left and then just figured it out. And like zero experience. Nothing. I've never made a game with a jump in it. Never made a game <laughs> with sword combat. Yeah. I uh, never did any of that stuff. Just figured it out and made Dark Siders. Right. And so the move to Austin, like, because around that time, Austin was like a hub for MMO development and everything as well. Oh, yeah. It was, everybody made MMOs in Austin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, there was so that was part of the reason because I was like, I just wanted to work on a console game. So there wasn't yeah. like another company in town making console games. So yeah, I was like, well, I'll just, we'll just make I'll our just own company it. in town <laughs> that makes console games. <laughs> and there were a couple other guys I worked with that were similarly minded. So we, yeah. we left and we, that's why we started Vigil. 
But yeah, yeah, you're right. It was like all MMOs all over the place. Yeah. It's like MMO yeah. City over there at the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so tell me about those early days of Vigil and, the, and those moments to decide to kick things off. Did you did you bootstrap? Did you have some mysterious, another another Raj call you and say, I want to back you guys? Like how how did this no, come about? How do you make yeah, we, total, we totally bootstrapped. So it's funny because while I was at Antisoft, I flew down to Epic and they were showing up Unreal I guess yeah. it was three. Yes, Unreal yeah, three. It wasn't even out yet, and I was like, "Wow, that's amazing!" And the first thing I did when I go, I was like, "I just want to make an engine like that." I don't. <laughs> so I like started to make an engine in my spare time, um, and so by the time we left NCSoft, like I already had a pretty advanced three D engine working. I mean, yeah, advanced for the time, not for yeah, today. Yeah. But um, so I just I I like I spent a lot of time building the engine from the ground up, like all the three D stuff sound everything editor the whole nine and then nice. we used that and we made a, a demo of dark Sires, and it was like yeah it's funny i have a video of that i probably have that demo somewhere but it's just Amazing. like it was really primitive but we spent a lot of time on the basic field to make sure like hey jumping feels good and we had glide in there and you could fight some yeah. dudes and like it was like simple graphics but it it felt really really good yeah and we um we started shopping that around and then NCSoft actually hired us to finish that Dungeon Runner game because it never <laughs> got finished because they had canceled it. Right. So we did work for hire on that for a while while we were shopping um, Dark Siders around. And how many and then, folks were you at this point in time? You were like five, ten, or something like that? Yeah, or? I think we uh, we might have been like five or six people when yep. we were doing Dungeon Runner. Not a lot, maybe five. Um, and then it looked very likely for a while that we were going to do a Sly Cooper game on PSP. That's oh, <laughs> Oh, yes, because I, I, yeah, I they like they were like, hey, can you do a Sly Cooper? And I was like, I don't know, send us a dev kit. And I had like, I went ham for like two nights and got our engine running on the PSP, and yeah. they were pretty impressed. And then also, um, Joe Matarero is one of the guys that found it, like drew some amazing Sly Cooper concepts that are yes, still some of the coolest Sly Cooper concepts I've ever seen. So they were like, this looks amazing. And then like right then, like we were literally about to sign that deal, and THQ's like. Hey, you guys want to do Dark Siders? We're in. We're like, yeah, we want to do Dark Siders. Wow. And then they're like, hey, why don't we just buy you? And then you can become an internal studio. We're like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where we, I mean, we had already found a Vigil Games, but that's how Vigil Games became a subsidiary of THQ and right. ultimately and went on to make Dark Siders. Yeah. And Ben, were you on at this time or did you come on? No, I came after Dark Siders 1 was shipped for Dark Siders 2. Okay. But interesting to see this because again we we're still friends still you yeah. know went to e3 with these guys and all this other kind of stuff with the team and it was it was very interesting to get to know them because uh from realm interactive some of those fellas you know went to austin and, and formed the, the vigil studio and so it yeah. was really cool to see that that growth and that maturity and actually starting to play with the big boys because dark side is a is a pretty you know a, a robust title and has that as dave was saying the first time yeah. it was a really cool 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 to see you know from the outside perspective and so that's yeah. why it was always in the back of my mind oh there's always that opportunity and then it just kind of start the stars aligned to kind of like hey come on out let's do it let's do an interview let's come out and talk to these guys see if we can uh, partner up again so that's kind of cool. how that worked so dave let's um let's stay on dark siders for just a second here because the game is obviously like phenomenal and it's just such an achievement especially for a studio first time around title and it's and one of the things that really strikes me which is you know, I know we're going to talk a bit about this with Remnant as well, is that like Darksiders just 
unapologetically knows what it is, you know? And I think that was something that really, when, when I first saw the game, when I first played the game, when it came out and hearing people talk about it or whatever, it was, and I mean that it knew what it was in regards to like, there didn't seem to be much cruft or, you know, like, um, anything that wasn't in its right place. It was a very tight and tidy game. How did the, you know, from what you're telling me here, you just wanted to work on a console game, created an engine, and then Darksiders came out of you and your team's work there. But how did that concept come about? And how did you and your team, you know, execute on something that, you know, you would expect a studio that's worked in this genre, you know, multiple times already to deliver? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, early on, I really, 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 really wanted to make a Zelda game because I love Zelda. Um, <laughs> and so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the setting would be. And yeah, I remember we were like meeting at my house and then Joe was driving, Joe Matarero was driving home and he like called us on the phone. He's like, I got it. Four horsemen of the apocalypse. But originally, the original idea is like, they're the four of the apocalypse and they're going to college. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, it's called Darksiders U. Where I was like, uh, okay. Um, so anyway, it started with that, but the, the idea of the forest and the apocalypse is really cool. Yeah. And it ended up just being, it ended up where it ended up. But I think that like, I don't know, like, I think it got, we did it, it got to where it was just because we were ambitious and, you know, didn't really know where to stop. Cause honestly there's, it could have been a tighter game. Like I agree with you. It turned out really tight, but it was a lot yeah. of work to get it there because we tried yeah. to do so many things. We were like, what a flight sequence. But we had like gun sequences in that game and of course yeah. big bosses and puzzles and traversal and a large seamless world with no loading screens and like we did a lot of stuff that we really had no business doing because <laughs> we were literally starting from scratch and like none of yeah. us had any experience with it but like yeah. i was pretty stubborn like I, I i knew what i wanted in the game and like i just made sure i'm sure there's a probably a lot of people that don't think fondly of me at that time because I was very like, no, let's just do this. I don't care what it takes. Make it happen <laughs> somehow. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think in the end, there was some pride in the accomplishment. Like we did, yeah. we pulled something off that we like really had no right to have been able to pull off. Yeah. Um, so it felt pretty good. Plus no one believed, like T even THQ was like, eh, I don't know. Well, maybe we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and so what then happened? Like you've shipped, um, well, maybe Ben, let's hear from your perspective. We, sh we ship Darksiders 1, you come into the team. What's, what's happening at Vigil? What's, what's, what's the hubbub after, you know? So, what, so when I came onto the team, they're working on Darksiders 2 with a smaller team and yeah. they're working on an unreleased DMO, which is an MMO project with gear, yeah. with, uh, Games Workshop. So again, at, uh, at geeking out as a kid, wow, that's the ultimate MMO. What a great franchise to work on. You know, Dave's yeah. all excited about it. Like, man, we're doing this. You know, we yeah. got uh, Space Marines. It's so interesting. But you know what? Uh, you know, I started on the Darksider side of things, which was cool and and yeah. coming on board and just learning the ropes and, and kind of like the new version of how games are made. And so yes. there was a, a a steep learning curve on on what was going on with that, where I come, my background is, you know, people management and, and logistics and all these other kind of things and coming back and saying, okay, how do I apply these skill sets to the the new way that things are done and ramping up on the technical jargon and ramping up on how the how how it all works versus, you know, your day-to-day nine-to-five kind of jobs of where what, what I was doing before. And so I think from that perspective, there was this learning curve of just learning the people, learning the environment, mm -hmm. you know, uh, picking Dave's brain on stuff and then uh, and making sure that uh, there was this element of I understood what was going on and then yeah. being able to to help out and insist and, and craft that experience of, hey, 
we're working on this Darksiders and you, you come into a studio that's got, you know, 200 plus people, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's a lot of uh, right. people to work through and understand and what's going on from that perspective. And so from coming on to as a, as a uh, I think there was uh, my initial title was like a, uh, uh, a production, something in production. I can't remember. It was like a, not, <laughs> not an associate, on your business, uh, something in production, something in production. <laughs> I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't like a, a junior guy, but it was yeah, because I, I had it. some experience like, Hey, you're not going to come in here and run things, but you're going to come in here and just learn the kind of the ropes. And so that's what, yeah. you know, cutting my teeth and doing, you know, the two years on dark siders and watching that mm. and shipping that title and understanding that. And then the tumultuousness after that fact and going through all the THQ kind of uh, churn, was quite eye-opening from a standard, you know, because I just uprooted my family and brought them out here to Austin, you know, like, oh, and now here we go. Yeah, yeah. here we go with, there's a a lot more uh, of these these highs and lows through the industry where you have that, hey, we're at the peak of shipping games and oh, here you are now selling the company and bankruptcy and what's going on from that perspective. And so it was quite, quite interesting that road and just seeing the dynamics of the team and, and yeah. getting to know those folks. And, and, you know, I still talk to a lot of those guys today and we still work with a lot of those guys today from the original group. And so I yeah. think that that is, has always been, you know, a fond memory from, from those days at vigil. Well, Ben, something interesting as well is like you, you know, the industry has been around long enough that there are studios like gunfire where, you know, it's, it's, they're run by folks and there are folks who work there who've worked together across decades at multiple studios now and everything when we can, you know, you bring all of that experience, whether it be in your skill set or just in your, you know, having closed out however many games and knowing where not to step and where not to tread, you know, is Ben, is there something that you, that you remember when you came on board at that point in time and you're learning the ropes, watching like your childhood friend and like co, sure. you know, ex-colleague Dave and, you know, all of, all of his crew making games that you were, really impressed by that you think still is around today at, at gunfire games like do you is was there anything that you that you noticed then that is still sort of like a core of gunfire games i think i think the, the coolest part or at least one of the things at least for our i think every studio has its own little experience and the nuances course, that, yeah. that go and i think throughout the the years and work with them i think there's a there's a a, a passion of wanting to produce something special and something memorable and, and, and coming to fruition, no matter what roles people were playing in that. I think that everybody came to the point of, I want to make a good game. I want to make a, a product that I feel conf- I feel good about and that, that will be lasting and I can put my name on it and be proud that I, you know, I have memorabilia on the wall or I, and I'm proud that I put my name associated with that. And I think cultivating that, that group and the, and the camaraderie behind that because yeah. you're doing, you know, at that time we were doing, you know, lengthy hours. You're doing a lot of, you know, where we talk about crunch culture and stuff like that. Back then, yeah. that was more normalized in terms of yeah. like, hey, you just did what you needed to do to get the product and and on time. And while that was very the same way in the real, I'm going to call it the real workplace where you're working nine to five, you know, you've yeah. got yeah. deadlines, you've got this. Yeah. This was much more creatively like that. And it, and it felt similar in that aspect. But then mm. at the same time, there were much more, you know liberal feelings of like there wasn't a time clock where you're punching it and saying get in your seat at nine and get out at five there was zaniness to it you know like a a much more um interesting aspect versus the business professional that you think of when you work at you know like a a a (laughs) goldman sachs or something like that you're like hey man i'm not showing up these guys are coming in in shorts and a t-shirt and barely you know with flip-flops and you know and hardly shaving and stuff and so i think that was the culture shock for me is like wow this is very unstructured from that regards, which is quite interesting. But at the same token, 
the energy level, the creative level, that 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 part of being in those meetings and seeing how an idea comes to fruition and how all the people that are gathered in there come up with those little bits and create this awesome experience was yeah. really, really just, again, phenomenal to see it on such a larger scope. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think as well, <clears throat> you can see that stuff like through the games that you, you all have worked on, even Remnant. I mean, one of, the, one of the most amazing things about Remnant that we'll no doubt talk about is like how many elements there are in the game that's again seem to come together cohesively and it's one of those things that i don't think can really happen unless you have a team sort of unified around a vision and really committed to that to that goal but let's stay on vigil for a second so you're working on dark siders too you you ship that as well but obviously you're heading towards well thq is heading towards troubles right as well dave so Talk to me about like <clears throat> Vigil and Darksiders 2 and sort of coming into around, what was it, 2013, I think, to HQ file for bankruptcy, right? Yeah, so we, I mean, we finished Darksiders 2, like you said. Um, yeah. uh, like Ben mentioned, we were making an MMO in the 40K yeah. universe called Dark Millennium Online. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really ballooned the studio because Darksiders 2, I mean, until the very end, was probably only like 70 people. Yeah. yeah. Now it ballooned up because we rolled a bunch of people from Dark Millennium Online because they shut that down. Yeah. Um, but I think that was when we, that was probably the first pain we had was because they shut down the MO because they just couldn't afford it anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we had to lay off some folks at that point and we kind of trimmed down to a smaller team to finish the game. And then we started working on another game, which was called Crawler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we were working on that and, and it wasn't a Dark Centers game. And then, yeah, it was just like, I wouldn't say it came out of nowhere, but I mean, because you could see the warning signs like yeah. people left, new people came on board, stuff was being shut down. You started to see the writing on the wall. Yeah. And then it was like, no, it's okay. We're going to go bankrupt, but it's all right because we're going to sell everything to this other company. It's all going to stay together and everything's going to be fine. Um, and then I was actually at the bankruptcy auction in Delaware when wow. they like started parting it out. And I remember they're like, never mind, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Like literally at the bankruptcy option. Because I think um it, it was contingent on some like turns out that the goal of bankruptcy is to maximize the amount of money that the yes. shareholders <laughs> receive from the bankruptcy, not to Extract do some as much from it as you can. Yes, not to do some sweet deal where one company keeps it all. Um, yeah. so it ended up getting parted out, and then for whatever reason, like Vigil just didn't get no one bought Vigil, which I mean I could understand, like Dark Stars 2 was done. Yeah. The only project we were working on was nascent. It was an unknown IP. Yeah. And like all the other studios had projects that were like six months from being done or like yeah. a year from being done. Um, and so when you're buying out of bankruptcy, like you're looking for the bargains, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I was like, I remember I was seeing, reading the final book of the Wheel of Time at the bankruptcy auction. It was pretty funny. I was like, <laughs> um, two things coming to an end at the same time. <laughs> yeah. How meta. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> But like then another opportunity came out that you then went across to Crytek, am I right? Crytek in Austin? Yeah, they were we were like having an all hands meeting. Um, and I think someone was talking to the team, telling them about just like, hey, your insurance will last this long or whatever. Yeah. And like Aoni Yearly at Crytek called me. It was like three o'clock in the morning in Germany. He's like <laughs> half asleep and he's like, Hey, my my brother wants to want you guys to come work with us. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> well, who are you, first of all? Um, and they were like, they like came out and they like met me in a hotel somewhere. He's like, yeah, but he's just got to get a feel for you and see if you're the right type of person. 
Yeah. And I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. <laughs> like, I was still in shock. I was like, I don't want to. Yeah. Like, I had literally no idea what I was going to do. So I met, the, he's like, all right, well, let's do it. Invite people over you think they want to come work with you, and then we'll see how many people show up, and then we'll decide if we're going to do it based on that. And so I just like, we, I talked to Ben, we talked to some, a lot of the key people, and we're like, hey, you guys want to work for Crytek? And we're like, yeah, Crytek sounds badass, man. They make really cool games. They're mm-hmm. pretty prestigious. So we like, I don't know where we met him at some hotel, like a, it was a hotel, hotel or something like that. Some um, hotel that we were signing. And he's like, Hey, cool. A bunch of people showed up. All right, let's do this then. And they like pulled out some like contracts, like employment contracts, contracts and basically employment like contracts. hired everybody on the spot. So wow. it was all over the course of like two days or something crazy. Yeah. It was very quick. Like, yeah. I feel like he jumped on a plane the next day after he called me and flew out. So holy shit. Wow. And so Ben, you know, obviously he- hearing it from Dave's perspective and, you know, naturally, like as Dave's mentioned, these things, you know, even when the writing is on the wall, they can happen very quickly, you know, like how, how did it feel, you know, sort of being in the, in the team as well, you know, like obviously, and with the, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the irony isn't lost on me that we're sort of going back and talking about this is sort of like a, a key part or, or, you know, a major event that happened in both of your journeys in development when, you know, we've had over 6,000 people or something laid off in the industry now because of similar things, you know, like parent companies shaving down or going under or whatever, you know, it's, it can be a pretty traumatic event when you're, when you're going through this stuff and then you find yourself very, very soon after, like at another company, how did it, did you sort of come out of it and considering that you and a number of your team landed on your feet, was it kind of okay? Or was it, was it, you know, I think, I think it was, it was, it was depressing, I think, you know, because yeah. you think of, Hey, here you have this camaraderie. And like, like Dave said, it was about 70 or 80 people initially on dark siders. You're working every day with these folks, interacting with these guys. And then you had the hundred and some odd, maybe heck, I can't even remember what the total, it might've been 130, 140 people on DMO. DMO. And then yeah. you make this drastic cut and you cut, you know, 70 people from a, a project yeah. now yeah i wasn't involved with each one of those but that was a shocking testament to you know like okay you then you go through and you've now incorporated another you know 60 people on the project so you're about 130 or so on yeah. dark siders to push to that end and so you're learning all these new people we had people in the aisles you know just set up you know ready to working bringing wow. on this you know pushing for that final stretch to get this on because again the idea is like hey this will be one of those titles if it comes out you know maybe it you know solidifies things and you know yeah. and then to come out and then you know several months later um say oh okay now you've got to make your your now there's you know dave's hey man nobody's buying vigil you know this is it this is and you're making these cuts as you're going along and you're seeing you know comrades you know friends people that you would spend an enormous amount of time with either hey i'm gonna go work at another company which is great to hear or yeah. you know what i don't know what i'm going to do you know here I'm packing up my stuff and and I'll I'll talk to you later and you might not ever get to talk to those guys again and I think yeah. that to me was very um you know sad it's just a sad experience when you go through it and I think the one thing that stuck with that was I was I always wanted to try to avoid having to do that if we ever had to do our own thing and so that yeah. I, in my head the back of my head I was always like you know these are people's lives that are committing to you and coming at you with families and all these other things and those experiences and they'd been out here you know six seven eight years you know mm-hmm. hell even a, a year you're, you're starting to get roots and you want to be there and I think that to me was very just you know it was just a sad I don't know how else you would put it yeah. and so from that perspective seeing that and and basically saying that was all out of our control 
Yeah. And then Crytek swipe, sweep, sweeps in and, okay, it's like a life preserver, but you're, you're making decisions on who can get in the life raft, right? Like who are we yeah. going to take? Who do we – you can't take everybody because the project's not going to – they don't need 140 guys, you know? And so yeah. from that perspective, you kind of evolve and say, okay, this is what you have to do and try to, you know, either – find a home or help somebody else out with, you know, Hey, here's a LinkedIn or here's something I can do for you or whatever you can do from that perspective. And I think even from, from my level and then looking at what Dave, you know, was the, the decisions that were going on from him being at the, you know, as the CEO of, of, of a vigil, you know, it's certainly a, a different kind of role and responsibility that await there because yeah. all those guys had got, a lot of those guys had gone through the DS one experience as well. And to yeah. see in part ways with them was pretty, you know, pretty difficult. So I think that to me, you know, is a, you see your friend over there going through this and saying, Hey man, this sucks. Obviously we had some, you know, discussions on what that would look like and moving forward, going into Crytek. And then with the hope that, okay, we, we, we've got a, you know, a name brand company that's with us, our, our past financial troubles will be behind and we can hit the ground running with doing the things that we want to do, mm. which is not the business side of those things and the ugliness, but yeah. creating cool products that people can have, you know, the games that people can have fun with. Yeah. Well, Dave, you know, like really props to you as well on even securing that life raft because it doesn't come along all the time, right? Like you, um, so often people find themselves in icy waters and, you know, you just fall under under the surface, you know, there isn't, there isn't even a life raft to bring people into. But let's, you know, let's move forward now beyond this because it wasn't long after, it was 2014, right, that you, that you founded um, Gunfire Games. Am I correct? correct? Right. Yeah. So then... Tell me, this is what now you're, it's like if we include your, you know, your first rinky dink little business cards and your trip to E3, this is like your third, <laughs> third run at this. And especially with the perspective that I imagine working for, you know, under THQ as a large parent company and then going through that whole process, how, how did it steal you? And what was your, do you remember coming into gunfire and sort of the sort of uh, the principles or the values or the spirit that you, that you had going into it and the things that you wanted from it? Uh, yeah, I think for me personally, um, you know, it was largely to just keep working with the same people I'd worked with because yeah, we didn't leave Crytek by choice. It's not like we're like, hey, let's get out of here. Like they have their own troubles and, you know, by all accounts, they're in pretty good shape now, but they definitely had, they had a little hiccup at that point in time that yeah. um, uh, made it so we had to leave. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I had worked with a lot of these people a long time, like, mm. um, you know, we all had kids at the same time. Like, I mean, I think, I think a couple of our kids were born within like a month of each other. Like, wow. Uh, my daughter is now 12. So like we'd worked together a long, long time. And, uh, you know, I think there was a really a sense too of like, Hey, we want it to be under our own destiny. Right. Cause we went to Crytek. It wasn't really under our destiny. Like we were just working for Crytek and we were yeah. kind of like beholden to whatever they wanted to do or whatever their business decisions were. Yeah. Um, and even with Vigil, like, you know, I sold Vigil really early on to THQ. So, um, you know, with Gunfire, it was like, hey, let's just do this ourselves. And like, yeah. we're not coming in to sell this thing right away. Like, we actually want to start and operate our own game company. Yeah. And I think at that point, like, we had enough of a reputation because I think that one thing about game development is that it, it it is the people, but it's also the combination of the people, right? You could get like... 20 really great developers and stick them together and they may not make anything good because they maybe yeah. don't work well together or they have different tastes in games or they like to make different stuff. Um, but we definitely had an advantage is that we had a core group of people that had worked together so long and we were able to leverage that and go to people and say, hey, look, we know what we're doing. 
we work together. It's a known quantity. Like we can make stuff. Um, and so we were able to get work pretty, we kind we bootstrapped it. We were able to get work pretty quick. We did some initial work for Amazon. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, uh, Jason Rubin, who was actually my boss at the end at THQ had just started at Oculus and he's like, Hey, give me a call. I was like, all right. (laughs) Because <laughs> they had just bought, <laughs> I think they had just bought the, well, he worked at Facebook, but they had just Facebook, bought Oculus, right. right? Yeah. And then he's like, yeah, so we're doing this whole mobile headset. It's like back when you like clipped a phone in the headset. Yeah, like in thing. the cardboard style. Yeah, but it was all super it. top secret. Like, um, yeah. and he flew, flew us to San, or yeah, I guess it was San Francisco and to the Facebook office. I don't remember where he flew us. I don't, it wasn't the Facebook office yet at the time. <laughs> Maybe the original Oculus office, wherever that was. They're black side. Yeah. Yeah. And they showed (laughs) us and I was like, yeah, this is super cool. And he's like, Hey, we just need developers to work on this stuff. And they were making some, uh, a game called hero bound. And initially they just needed someone to help them out with that. Yeah. It was funny because remember I got like a Samsung, like seven or whatever that wasn't out yet to try it, to take it home. And I like left it (laughs) in a hotel and I was freaking out because it was like, (laughs) you know how people find like the leaked phones Uh because someone left it in a box or something like that. I was the guy yeah. I called cleaning and they're like, we haven't seen a phone. And I'm like, that's bullshit. There's a phone in there. I got it back. <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, we got lucky. You know, I mean, there was a certain amount of luck there because we had yeah, context. Course, and, people, is, right? and he knew he worked with us. You know, he was there at the end of Darksiders 2. And like, he would call me like every night because he'd be fighting a boss in Darksiders 2. He's like, this boss is bullshit. It's way too hard. <laughs> I was like, I, I just kept telling him like, I don't know, man, maybe you just aren't good at these kinds of games anymore. <laughs> and then um, there's a funny story about that because then we made Kronos, which is our first original IP on, on the yeah. web. And we had a similar thing where we were going to joke, we were going to make Ruben mode, which is like super easy mode because he had right. the same complaints about the boss in Kronos. Oh, um, <laughs> hopefully he's listening to this. But anyway, yeah. we would, he definitely could not play Remnant. I just let me just throw that out. There. But anyway. Um, <laughs> no Ruben so, mode in Remnant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Oculus friendship was really great for us. We did we did a lot of stuff with them. They were really great to work with. Really nice. It was an it was an amazing work with it. We we enjoyed all our time with them. Absolutely, no complaints there. So hell yeah. Um, so yeah, tell, we just want to stay together and keep working. But. Tell me a little bit about Kronos. It's your first first original game as a studio. You know that must have been exciting and 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 how the development of that generally generally go seamless. Had fun or yeah that I. <laughs> I will say that was like my most purely proud moment of game. Cause we made that thing in 11 months. Wow. Which is crazy. Yeah. From like start to finish, which is crazy in and of itself. Yeah. Um, yep. And we, we somehow we pulled it off. I don't know how we did it, but it like, <laughs> if you go back and look at that game with the, the perspective that, Hey, they made this game in 11 months on hardware that hadn't even come out yet. Um, yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, it was it was a pretty impressive achievement. I'm super proud of how it turned out, and I think it was it was our first chance as a studio to make something. I love making original games. Like, yeah, I don't really yeah. like work for hire. I'll be honest with you. I didn't. I mean, yeah. we've done it a few times on things, but it's yeah. really not. Yeah, I'm always like, let's just do something cool and new that we want to do. Yeah. Do you, okay. So I've spoken to a few people on the podcast now, you know, who've done the, you know, obviously when we get together on the podcast, it's usually because you've had some like great hit, whether it's critically, commercially successful, um, usually a combination of all of those. But when I speak to some of these folks, they've done the, the previous work for hire thing was there. And they've, the, the term that I've heard that I love is like 
escape velocity, essentially, right? It's like get, being able to like do enough to get yourself out of that like escape velocity. And so was it was it Jason and this this VR opportunity that enabled you to do Chronos your own original thing? Or was it was it like leveraging some sort of like gaining enough cash on the margins of your Oh no, they funds? definitely I mean they fully funded it. I mean we, yeah, we did great. really good on we did a really good job for them on Herobound. Um we ended up doing the sequel to Herobound hundred percent ourselves. And I think, you know, we 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 go with gusto with anything we work on, even though Herobound wasn't our quote unquote IP. Like we put everything we could into it, made it as awesome as we could in the time frame, and so I think it was very easy for them to turn around and say, "Okay, well, now we're doing the standalone PC headset. You want to be one of the launch titles?" We're like, "Yeah, all right. Well, you got to make it eleven months." We're like, uh, yeah. "Okay." There, <laughs> we'll there's some it. requirements to that, right? Yeah. Like eleven months. You can't get people sick. All these other kind of yeah, things. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> so I think we showed it. Didn't we show it three like three months after yeah. we started, or two yeah. months or something crazy? Yeah. He's like, oh, we have a demo ready for you three. We're yeah. like, uh, yeah, why not? Sign us up. <laughs> yeah. and, and at that time, they were giving very uh, favorable deals to, to developers in terms yeah. of like, hey, create your own IP. You guys can own it too. And so that yeah, just adds keep, value. Yeah, to, yeah that was yeah. huge. So that was yeah. huge for us. It's just it's when you know a platform needs content is always like the best time for developers, right? It's like the deals get yeah. they come in thick and fast. It's wonderful. Well, they were especially developer friendly. I mean, yeah. being able to work wow. on a project fully funded by a publisher and maintain IP rights is like pretty yeah, much huge. Unheard of. Yeah, I know it's wild, isn't it? Well, yeah. yeah, congrats. That's the that's the golden goose there. So you, <laughs> but then there's obviously in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over a few of these titles here. But you know, you dead and buried. Then you got from other sons and stuff. But then Darksiders three comes in as well. So <laughs> yeah. talk, talk me talk me quickly through how that one came back back around to you. Like, did you secretly make a bid in in the um in the the bankruptcy? We did auction? actually. Like, we did. At, well, we did right. on behalf of Crytek, but it was like pathetic yeah. and and uh, THP Nordic. <laughs> Well, at the time, I guess Nordic won the bid by a mile, like by a country mile, pretty much. Yeah. Right, um, yeah. Well, that's funny because there's a guy Reinhardt Poliche, and he like he worked at Nordic, and he had been he had been contacting me since way back at Crytek, and he was always yeah. just like sniff around. Like it started out like, hey, you got any Darksiders assets? Because we bought the IP. You mm -hmm. guys interested work? And I was like, nah, nah, nah. I don't want to work on Darksiders. We're doing our own thing. We're doing our own thing. And yeah. He is literally the most persistent human being on earth. Like I think <laughs> he just wore me down. <laughs> like eventually yeah. it's like, yeah, all right, we'll do Dark Siders 3. Right? Um, yeah, it, it was just like, I, I mean, it's like his superpower. He's just like so persistent. <laughs> you eventually just give in and say, fine, we'll do it. What, what do you want me to do? <laughs> um, and that's literally how, I mean, I can't think of, that's literally how it happened, to be honest. Amazing. And it's not like I didn't want to work on Dark Siders, but yeah, yeah I, I'm always just more interested in doing something new and, you know, yeah. um, but yeah, so we did Dark Science 3. We did it really cheap. We did it for like 10 million bucks or less than 10 million yeah, bucks. Wow. Which is like, for that guy. Which is insane considering Dark Science 2 was like $30 million. So <laughs> um, that's but that's the budget they had. But we made yeah. it work. Like we're like, all right, what what, what Dark Science cool. game can we make for 9 million or whatever it was? Amazing. Um, and we did our best. So Ben, t talk to me a little bit about, you know, you're, you're at Gunfire at this time as well, I imagine, right? You yeah, know, we co-started co co yeah. it at that point. And so... Yeah, great. Yeah, I think, you know, Dave hit the nail on the head. We really, we did some, the Amazon stuff, then went into the Oculus Facebook uh, yeah. universe and really, uh, you know, came out with Kronos, came out with yeah. other sons. A lot of people think we own the Hero Bound license, which we don't. That's Oculus's guys. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, uh, that really kind of set us up for that that next level. And then 
you know, to, to Dave's point, Reinhardt would always just be like, hey, we're at this event. Oh, here's Reinhardt. Hey, Reinhardt, we're going to yeah. go to lunch. <laughs> right. He became like you know, pseudo part of the team, you know, like yes. he's you know, contacting yeah. us and, you know, all the, you know, and just staying in contact with that. And then obviously dark side isn't creating that's near and dear to Dave's heart. So, you know, from mm-hmm. that perspective, that's not a, it wasn't a huge sale to say, Hey, I'd love to jump back into that franchise and see, see what we can do. Now. I think the budget was uh, probably the, the, the hardest thing to kind of swallow because you're used to doing something different from that. For so that's, a, that's what, like, cause I'm keen to get onto remnant. So the only real sure. question I'm going to ask around dark side is before we then move on to remnant and obviously all mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the amazing story, no doubt that's going to come out of that is you got, a third of the amount to make the game, Ben. Like, <laughs> tell me immediately how you went about solving that problem. As someone who's been given, I started my career making <laughs> making games that sure. only had a third of the budget that they should have had, right? Like, wh- how did you go about that? What's, you know, that immediate sort of like problem in front of you? And I, I guess think- like there's always a thing too, to add a little addendum to that is like from constraint, obviously great creativity comes as well. So in what ways did it assist and benefit the project or did great things come from it? I think to, and I, I'll go back to the Kronos uh, just to show you, because in 11 months, they really, Oculus said, we need it for a launch title and we need to be able to do it here. And I think for us with the Darksiders 3 stuff is, hey, it's got to be here and this is where we want to want to be at. And I think we were able to uh, navigate those waters and what, you know, how our existing team was, yeah. the scope of the project and really being a little bit of pragmatic and realistic on what we could do at the time. Yeah. Um, and that that's where we started, you know, saying, hey, we're not out to just kill everybody and hire a whole bunch of temp people that we can just, fl- you know, yeah. you know, fire at the end of this, the project and stuff. We really wanted to avoid that kind of uh, scenario, like I said, yeah. because of I felt like, hey, we can't just bring people on and just cut them loose at the end. It, it just didn't seem right or didn't sit well. And I think to Dave, you know, as the creative director on that one, hey, here's what we got. We got six guys, man. What do you think we can get done? And then the buy in from the team, trying to involve those guys and, and, and yeah, making that decision and say, hey, guys. You know, I remember certainly in, in several of those meetings, hey, we're going to go in and we're going to do this as everybody's on board. Right. And mm-hmm. everybody was like, yeah, we're ready. OK, cool. Then we would it would just execute and we would just get it done. And I think from that perspective, uh, that's how we were able to navigate those waters with the DS3, you know, scope versus what was delivered. And did it did it sort of was it hard? You know, games are notoriously hard to put sure. in a box at the end. Right. Yep. Did it. Was it hard to make it sort of work with that ten mil, or yeah. did you? Yeah, right. Yeah. Like we wanted, end, we wanted more time in. at the end. Of, at yeah, the end of the of day, we would have loved to have more time to be able to polish some things and change some things up. At the end of the day, I think that was our probably our biggest regret for that title is that we we just weren't given the opportunity to do that. Yeah, I think there's 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 a delta between what you could do and what even you would expect as a consumer, right? Because like yeah. you know, we make it like having made Dark Souls two for thirty million and then have to make the sequel for that for one third of that like you already know like this game isn't going to be like just honestly it's just not going to be as good as dark souls 2 yeah so then but it doesn't help when it comes out and everybody's like this game's not as good as dark souls 2 you're like it still hurts (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, it's literally impossible you know and and then you know you're selling it at full price and it's like people compare it to like a game like god of war 2018 (laughs) i'm pretty sure like two other cutscenes cost more than our entire game the whole budget and it's just like you got to be proud for what what you did with yeah. what you're given, but at the same time, it is it was it was a hard experience. I think. Yes. Yeah. I'm I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so you know, and I came from Dark Souls one and two, where I just like we're gonna do this hell or high water. I don't care. We're just gonna do it to like. Well, I guess we can't do that. No, I guess we can't do that. Well, let's do this instead. Let's do this instead, and yeah. happen to be a lot more practical and like uh, mm-hmm. 
strategic about what you actually put into the game so you can get it done. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I think that everybody worked hard on that title. Oh, yeah. It wasn't no, like, you know, there was, was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, yeah. and there's a lot of cool stuff that generated from that. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, good things that came from Fury's development, the whole storyline, a lot of that. Yeah. So I, I think from that perspective, even though, again, that's why we were hoping just to get some more time just to be able to polish some of those rougher edges on that 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 on that particular yeah. title. Yeah, it's, a, it's that compromise as well when you're coming to the end. And it's always a, you know, we're about to close, you know, two of our games in the next six to nine months, you know, we've got two in development and you just, you're watching the team like go through that realization moment that that feature isn't going to come in as complete as they had hoped or that that thing is going to get cut and everything. It's always, you know, it's, it's video games, right? It's, it's the putting it in the box part, but it's, you know, there are some projects where it definitely hurts more than others, no doubt. So let's, let's do it. Let's talk about Remnant. You know, this is the reasons, <laughs> the reason why we're here. So, right. Like it's you've obviously you've got this uh, this amazing story and like this again keeping the band together for so long and making a real point of it too you know and now you've got this team here and you you know again your own ip your own concept like tell me about how that came about dave did you have <laughs> someone from perfect world on the phone like or did was it a, a did you have enough kitty laying around to sort of kick off something on the side and pitch it around how did how did it come to be remnant um, I think that like the idea of the game preceded the IP, you know, cause yeah, like I had always wanted to make a game that was like randomly generated as far as like how, the, mainly because I just like, I can't play games more than once. So I was like, Hey, can I make a game that I would actually want to play more than once? Hmm. Um, and then I think at some point we were just like, Hey, we got this Cronus IP and we could reuse some of those assets. Like, why don't we set it in the quote unquote Cronus universe? Um, yeah. and, but it, Prior to that, it we had, it had it was its own universe and its own IP, and we'd even done a bunch of concept for it. So switching yeah. it to that same IP was actually kind of late in the game. But I think oh, the yeah. core of the game, like third-person shooter, randomized worlds, you know, it was a little bit more of a survivor game at first, survival yeah. game at first, where you're like eating food and shit. So some of that yeah. stuff didn't make it into the final game, but yeah. the core DNA of like this cool, randomly and infinitely repeatable adventure game um, was there with co-op. Along. Because yeah. we like co-op. We wanted to make a, a, a multiplayer game. Yeah, right. so and if you look at it, a game we worked on from Other Sons has a lot of the elements in Remnant. Yeah. Like, so we were building towards this from the very beginning. Like, wow. We have this idea that like, hey, every game we make is going to be some technical build stepping stone to this final game. You know, there are right. elements of Dark Side of the Three like, that we fleshed out as far as character movement, making bosses and stuff like that that go into remnant there's stuff from yeah. from the sons with the random map generation and stuff that went into remnant there's stuff from chronos that you know basic you know stuff that we did initial groundwork stuff for the technology that went into it all fed back into the same game we wanted to make at the end of the day so yeah. we've kind of been making it all and in fact we were i believe we were pretty far along even during dark side of three like we had a lot of stuff for remnant done it wasn't yeah. called Remnant at the time, but um, while we were working on Dark Souls 3, and we were pitching it around to like a bunch of different publishers. And yeah. just ultimately, Perfect World was the partner we decided to go with. They gave us the best deal. We liked them. Gave us the best deal. Um, yeah. And uh, we're off to the races after that. <laughs> <laughs> and so how long was development on Remnant 1? Had you, you know, obviously you have a certain amount of time when you start this thing, you get a budget, you have a certain amount of money. How sort of elastic was that or how did that compare to where you ended up shipping the game and how much time and stuff you had? I don't remember. I mean, we bootstrapped a lot of it ourselves. And then yeah, yeah. So we came I don't remember how much time it yeah. was after we signed with 
perfect world, though, to be honest with you. Right. I want to say it was a couple years. Uh, I think the whole total time. I, I, <clears throat> I mean, it's really hard because again, we were creating games that were building on that technology for Remnant too. But I would say that yeah. it was probably a thirty-six month cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember where Perfect World came in on that because we had a lot of assets already ready, so that helped leverage the deal more in our favor in terms of a residual. Yeah. And uh, how that all. And again, as a as a startup company, as a you know, that helps out in terms of where we want to be at in terms of uh, uh, of how that all looks. And so yeah. that was kind of the idea as the, as we were working through and and, you know, and starting that partnership with them and doing mm-hmm. milestone reviews. And that was new to us because, you know, we did our own things and now we're talking. Yeah, to Oculus very about much it. like yeah. just tell us. Yeah, the Oculus, game's done. <laughs> game's done, dude. It looks great. <laughs> yeah. So we're like, wow, we love this relationship. This is the <laughs> best relationship ever with the publisher dev ever. And so we've we've sort of cultivated that same relationship with the the perfect world guys who are now the Gearbox guys. And so yeah. uh, that that was really favorable in terms of like that just meshing well and that trust you know, establishing pretty quickly. Yeah. And then, right. uh, you know, so that, again, I think it was like 36, it was a, probably a 36 month dev cycle. Yeah. Exactly. If I'm not and excuse excuse yeah. my ignorance here, but like when you say the perfect world guys became the, the gearbox guys, is that through a, a company? Was it, are you talking specific people or was there a, like a, a no, perfect world got acquired by, by gearbox. The gearbox. Yeah. Right, but okay. so they became it was owned by Embracer, yeah. who also owns yeah. THQ. Who owns yes, that? yeah, okay, cool. it gets all complicated at the <laughs> yeah. end of the day. Yeah. You know, all the all Just the moving that people. Pure coincidence, yeah. too. Yeah, right. Okay. It was very fun. It seemed like everybody we were working with at at some point in time got a, acquired by Embracer. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, it, 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 just like <laughs> okay, yeah, that's yeah. For sure. We had, you know, we we went work with this company called Metric Minds, and the same they they did a lot of our cutscenes, uh, and so they got acquired by, you know, so it was just interesting to see that development and that, you know, yeah. now they're part of the Embracer Group kind of element. Yeah. Now we were we were talking as well with in regards to Dark Siders Three and some of your other games about putting something in a box and the things that you, you know, the compromises that you have to make or the things that you have to let go. And one of the most incredible things about Remnant 2 and the the reception to it, you know, like if you watch the, obviously you guys have, right? But like the IGN review, like the video review of Remnant 2 is like, this, <laughs> the reviewer is obsessed with your game. Like it's so <laughs> incredible. And one of the things that they talk about is, and this is a this is a constant across even your user reviews and everything is how much Remnant 2 sort of builds upon and is so successfully builds upon the concepts of Remnant 1 and even those areas in which Remnant 1 may have not have, you know, come together or been fully formed or hit as much as it could have. For you internally, as you're closing out Remnant 1 and you're moving into Remnant 2, like what what was it that you knew that you wanted to tackle? What were the parts you were like, ah, that you had to compromise on that you knew you wanted to dive into for Remnant 2? Um, I think, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like when we first started Remnant 2, we were just like, hey, let's just do more Remnant 1. And I think make a lot it, of make it stuff, a quicker turn. <laughs> a lot of yeah. the stuff we ended up, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of stuff we ended up adding were natural progressions of things we had already did, like you know, nice. we added the archetype system to just give players sort of a, because a, we always had debates on Remnant 1. It's like, oh, should you have a class? Should you not have a class? Like, what's the way yeah. of doing classes in a Remnant-friendly way? Yeah. And that became the archetype system. And then um, for the quest system, like, we just wanted more, bigger and more. Like, we wanted more yeah. interesting side quests. We wanted more side quests. Yeah. Um, we did a thing in Remnant 2 where we randomized the story biomes because, you know, as much as we always claimed, hey, the game's different every time you play, that wasn't totally true in Remnant 1 because every time you went to Earth, you always rescued the Root Mother in the church and you always yeah. met the keeper at the tower that appeared in the middle of the city. 
Um, so we're like, hey, what if even that was randomized? Um, but beyond that, it was really just like, hey, let's take everything we did and just do it better. Better, cleaner, bigger. better polish, make yeah. it look better, better lighting, characters look better. Um, so I think that was a big emphasis for Remnant 2. I mean, we always joked, it's like, oh, it's gonna, when it started, it was gonna be like Remnant 1.5, but I think <laughs> that didn't, and by that, we didn't mean, oh, we'll just like crank out another game using the same. No, you, you it was just more, happy with what you had before, right? And, yeah, uh, it was more like, hey, let's just, let's not go crazy with the sequel. Cause like Dark Souls 2, we were just like, screw it, let's just do something completely different with Diablo style loot and a different main character, blah, 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 yeah. all these dumb decisions. Um, <laughs> which I don't know, maybe they weren't dumb, but <laughs> two, we're like, all right, we're not going to do that. We're just going to take what we have and just like build up onto it and make it better. And I think yeah. that like, yeah, I always tell people ask, like, I, I feel like we pretty much got everything in the game we wanted to. Like, yeah, I don't think there was a lot of thing in Remnant 2 where we're like, oh, man, I wish you could have got this done. I mean, there might have been a few things here and there, but like pretty yeah. much everything we no set out to do, we did. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then saw a little extra that we threw in at late moments that stressed Ben out, like, um, <laughs> hey, we should do inject we should do injectables. We'll do nine injectables and every buy them. Yeah. But, but anyway. <laughs> so um, Ben, let's from you know, you're the development director on Remnant 2. Mm-hmm. Let's 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 talk about, you know, the development of Remnant 2 versus Remnant 1 off the back of what Dave's Dave's saying. You said you had 36 months, you're obviously new I well, you know, it was it was a new IP at the start with Remnant One, and then sure. obviously you pulled in the mm-hmm. Chronos world and everything. But like these building off the tech that you had over those years, but it is still like, you know, the, the first game in a series, right? But now sure. you're on the the lucrative first sequel that all of the, you know, all of the big studios and publishers are looking to get at. Tell me how the how the development differed. It sounds like it was more, you know, just bigger, better, more. But were there things that came along that posed challenges or was it this beautiful moment where you're like, we've got the game. Let's just, you know, let's just add to it. Let's just keep going like Dave says. <laughs> I, I think I think <laughs> I think there's always, there's always a uh, you know it's 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 interesting development is always interesting you know you can't schedule creativity and so you've got yeah. you got you know it's not like I can say there oh Dave be creative now and, you know <laughs> let's go yeah. but there were many you know lunch conversations different things that just as we started talking about the initial like hey we're ready to do Remnant two what does that look like hey Remnant one point five we've got some of these assets let's make it a little bigger we can do this we can upgrade this to this and I think. People just started the, – again, this is the organic n- nature of how the, the project's kind of – the scope and the project starts working and, mm-hmm. and the favorable aspect of working with Perfect World slash Gearbox now in terms of our relationship with them. And I think when we first started talking about it and you know when Dave came up with the idea of, hey, what if we did – you know instead of one main story arc like we did before, what if we did it like you know more siloed off where each, each biome could have its own story and kind of wrap it up, but we still have this main arc. And I'm like, all right, cool, man. Let's throw some numbers together. Let's look and see. Let's talk to the guys and see if we get some buy-in in terms of do we think we got the staff for this? What does it look like? You know, it's very much more analytical because, you know, yeah. you just got time. The thing yeah. that you can't make, I can't make 24 hours more than 24 hours. You can add people, but you can't make more time. And so when we were looking at it, I think uh, the challenges are always in like, hey, when Dave throws out like injectables was probably one of the bigger ones where they're they're these uh, individual like POI things. And you're already sitting there like, OK, my one of my favorite things to do is figure out ways to make that work. Yeah. Like how do we, it's a great idea. It's, oh, I'm all on. Let's figure out how do we make that work? What do we need to do? Do we need extra guys? Do we need a little bit more time? 
how can we structure it to where we can actually, you know, can we use something to where we can just modify it a little bit and get some yeah. savings there? And so I think from that perspective, that's that was the sort of the 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 jiggle the juggling along the on, along the directive. And then throughout every title, there's major you know flare ups and you know, oh my goodness, this isn't working, and then this is working, and this isn't working, or the cutscenes aren't coming in on time, or you know, we have to re-record some VO because this is you know. And I think learning in those processes, and again, the team really is. We I, I always feel like. Throughout our history, at least, we've always punched above our weight in terms of what we deliver, yeah. you know, and what and how many people work on a title for us, you know, individually. And so where Remnant 2 was one of our our bigger titles, it still is for what we deliver and the budget we have and the people, the people always overshoot what we're always shooting for. And I think that's an, a testament to the strength of the team. And so yeah. I think from that perspective, everybody got excited about, hey, this is looking cool. This is looking fun. I want to be a part of that and I'm going to push it. I'm going to push it a little bit more in terms of what we can give and what we can get out of the engine, you know, moving from four to five, unreal four to five, giving us a little bit, especially late in the project, you know, giving us oh, some wow. more bells and whistles to, to turn, to, to tweak with and, uh, and, and mess with. And so I think from that perspective, those, those are those huge, like, Hey, okay, we're going to do it. Right. Everybody's on board. Right. Okay. If we do this, we got to be ready. And then again, having a, a, a partner like perfect world, being able to say, we believe in your vision. Yeah. You know, you you guys need because we had come and we had said, hey, I think we're going to we're shaping up and we were able to kind of look at the velocity and how we were going. I'm like, I think we need like, you know, probably 120 more days, you know, just to be able to yeah. to get a little bit more polished in there to be able yeah. to have that. And them guys look and say, hey, yeah, man, that that sounds like a good deal. Here's where we'll change this. We'll bump this a little bit. And so I think all those things help create the title that you get at the end, which is yeah. which is, you know, where Remnant 2, where we started, where we always think we're going to start and then where we finally end up at. And then everybody's really proud about that, even though there might have been some hair pulling and some, you know, anger and some, you know, frustrations and stuff like yeah. that. Like, oh, why, why can't you do this or why can't you just understand we can't do this? But then it always it kind of works its way out once you're in the thick of things. and You're like, hey, I see everybody rowing in a direction and yeah. we're all trying to give it our all. Yeah, I think it's pretty humbling just to see everybody working so hard and there's so many people that care about what they're doing. And I mean, you lose sight of that sometimes when you're busy or like giving feedback or trying to get stuff done. But yeah, I think that like, yeah, there are a lot of people on the team that really, really cared about the game and put a lot of yeah. effort into Reddit 2 to make it awesome. I don't think and there's think anything in, in video games, like in my time making games, you know, like it's the, the moments that I always am having the most fun and that I like, always am like the most buzzed about working in games is never like those pie in the sky creative like blank canvas moments or anything like that it's like when you're in it with the team and everyone around you is just like singularly focused and like working like a well-oiled machine and like you say dave there you can just see like visibly see how much people care about the project and how much they're putting into it um, and sort of like moving as one, so to speak, you know, when you're coming into a milestone or closing out a game or something like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have to concur. I think that for our team, you know, seeing those kind of uh, those rewards and, and bringing, you know, somebody who is uh, younger and giving them a more opportunities than they would necessarily get in a larger studio and seeing that blossom and them take on those responsibilities and, and yeah. just knock them out of the park is, is just a rewarding experience. And I think that with Remnant 2, we were able to, you know, shoot for this again. We started here, and I, I believe that we're pretty realistic with what we can do. But I think that yeah. we always have that. Hey, there's probably 20 percent more in the gas tank we could probably floor and do it without having to kill everybody. Because again, we're older. 
we've learned a lot of things. The culture yeah. of, 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 of gaming in general is becoming more mature. So, you know, things that you were doing, you know, 10, 15 years back, you don't necessarily need to do anymore, or you can yeah. figure that out. And then you hit COVID, which we didn't even talk about. And so yeah. when you're all of a sudden restricted yeah. from work from home, you know, yeah. and now we're shipping a game, we're trying to work from home. And, and a lot of that uh, changed up how we thought about, hey, what can we do? when we're working from home, how do we change that communication now that we're not all in the studio? Yeah. How does that organic uh, creativity still happen? Because I'm yeah. not next to you. And we're, we're not referencing the latest thing that happened or playing the latest video game and talking about it and saying, Hey man, did you see this? Oh man, I read this or I saw this. What do we think about that or that? And so being able to still have those kind of connect points was very challenging yeah. for us. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure for right. a lot of studios. And I think yeah. that, you know, from that perspective, overcoming that and understanding that, Hey, it's a different mindset for us because we're still fully remote. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't require anybody to come to the office unless they want to, or yeah. certain roles that have to, like IT can't work on a server if they're not there, stuff like that, yeah, or QA if they're working on a console or something. But I think overall in general, that was another, you know, hey, let's just keep rolling weird dice, you know, through this, that last, you know, <laughs> couple of years of, of stuff that's happening. Okay, yeah, cool. Right. We're, 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 we're going through these, you know, tumultuous times here in the United States. And then you get some, a crazy pandemic that nobody's ever been a part of. And you just sit here and you go, okay, how do we still try to launch something and, and something that, can happen with all these other stressors that are going on in people's lives and still, yeah. still try to say, you know, Hey, I need you to focus and work when, you know, you're having this mental fatigue of everything that's just like coming on you. So I think from yeah, that perspective, yeah. again, the team was able to, was, was able yeah. to respond to that and be able to, to cultivate that. And it's, uh, you know, the results are right, right there. When you're playing the game, you can see that a lot of people cared about what they were doing there. Because am I right in saying you would have been basically shipping remnant one right in the height of the pandemic? Around about that time, were you closing it out? We right. closed we, out. No, that was before yeah. the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was yeah. 2019. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So 2021, yeah, 20, yeah, 20, yeah. really twenty two. Yeah. Oof. Remnant Remnant Two was a little bit more. It was about forty two months worth of development yeah, okay. time. Yeah. How many folks at, around that point in time, Remnant Two mid development? How many folks on the team are we talking on the game? Uh, right around probably seventy. Yeah. Okay. Seventy seventy five. Yeah, it just we um we had a we had a title in development about fifty people. We were in pre production when it hit in Australia, and you know in Melbourne we had the lockdowns, and it just bodied us. It's amazing how much yeah. like at the start there, you know, development slows down, and like you say, this unprecedented thing. You know, I mean, we're making video games for other industries that, and you know, yeah. government organizations that are dealing with you know much more, but still, like like you say, figuring out those connect points. Dave, how you know how did it feel? For you, so much of your studio and your history and like, you know, what sounds like is the, you know, the core fabric of what makes your games and, you know, Gunfire Games 2 is you and your pals, you know, and these folks that you've worked with for decades and now all of a sudden you're working from home. How much of that, how did it feel sort of watching that culture transform and what did, what did you feel that you had to do in order to protect that or retain that sort of synergy that Ben's talking about and what just was there already? And um, I think that. I would say one of the one of the less desirable aspects of it is that like mm. I don't feel like I know especially the newer people near as well yeah, as I used to. Right. I mean, there was a time where like I I I pretty well knew everybody in the office to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know now we'll have team meetings. And I'll be like, who's that? And it's not because <laughs> we have a ton of. I mean, we have we're bigger too, which is part of it. Yeah, but yeah. also just because you literally don't see them or they 
live in a different state. Like, we yeah, some, you don't have those in between moments now as well. Yeah, remote, right? exactly. It's like you have you interact with the people that you are in meetings. It's very transactional now, as opposed to yep. walking past someone at the you know the coffee machine or something. So that that's definitely something that's lost. Um, yeah, I think that the advantage of the people that I have worked with for so long is that it, it did make it a lot easier to work from home because we just we just know each other so well, you know. Like, yeah, of course. If I don't I don't really I mean I, I miss hanging out with them and I miss the camaraderie, but yeah. I would say that we're able to work pretty well together still because we just like we know we have all each other. They probably know all my quirks and all <laughs> like they probably know what I'm going to say before I say it. Um yeah. So I don't think there's, you know, it, it definitely helps in that respect. Yeah. And I think a lot of the leadership in the studio are all people that worked together a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think that was able to carry us through quite a bit. I can't imagine a team that wasn't familiar with each other having yeah. to go through the pandemic situation. That would have been a nightmare. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah like you said, it was, it was a big shock. Like at first it was it's crazy. Wild, like right? People were dealing with kids at home and all kinds of crazy stuff they had to take yeah. care of and try to work at the same time. But we pulled yeah. it off, we got it done somehow. <laughs> Incredible stuff. So let's, um, I, I'm really interested as well to just hear about, you know, talking about Remnant One and when it came out, like the, the reception, you know, from the community as well, obviously huge success. And was there something, Dave, that resonated for you with the community response? Like, was it where, you know, and it's funny when these things happen, like when you have a game that's successful, because it can be successful the re for the reasons that you think. And, you know, you, the the concept that you had can sort of like you can be vindicated when it comes out and been like, oh, yeah, great. And sometimes it can be like, you know, there are areas of the game or reasons that the, um, why people enjoy your game or even the way in which they enjoy it that can surprise you. Was there anything from the community and the response that, you know, you sort of steeled with you or took into Remnant 2 that, you know, surprised you or that really stood out for you? Um, I think that um, surprised me. That's a good one. That's a good question. I don't know. I, th I feel like a lot of the stuff we um songs important in the game were things that yep. really picked up i mean for me personally like in game development like the core mechanics are really 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 important like yeah. if it's a shooter game you gotta be able to shoot and it feels good right and i yep. think so it, it was obviously vindicating to have people say oh man like you know even in the reviews like the guns feel really good in this game because yeah. like, if the guns don't feel good in that game that game's garbage because it's a shooting <laughs> game um and i think that like you know the randomization of the world was a huge risk because honestly in Remnant 2 it's even a bigger risk when you think about it because at the end of the day we made twice as big of a game than someone's going to play through on the first playthrough or maybe yeah. even bigger than twice as big of a game and the, you know we've hired people and i've been like yeah we made quests that people may literally not even roll in their world and they're like that's madness yeah. like, who would even do that um and so <laughs> there was some doubt as you know hey would that be appreciated i didn't think people would think badly of it but my yeah. word was like, are they even going to care? Like we did all this yeah. effort and we're going to play it once and be like, all right, that was a fun game. Move on. And if yeah. that's what Is happened. It's just really like a waste of money as well. Yeah. Right? We just waste our time doing it. But no, like people would like, they would, you know, they go out on Reddit and say, hey, I'm looking for this quest. Do you have this quest? Or I have this quest. Hold my world. Do you want to jump in? And so, you no, know, no, that people's desire to collect all the little bits and bobs in the game and that tied in very well with the random quest system. It was really cool to see that sort of community build up around that. Um, you'll even yeah. see it now with Reddit too, where like, I'm doing an apocalypse room or I'm like, I'm trying to get this or I'm trying to do that. And people trying to like, just get together to jump in other people's worlds to get content that's not in their world and that kind of stuff. So plus just, I think it really worked out well with, um, you know, 
especially in an age of streaming, right? Because you could watch the yeah. game and you'd be watching it on two different streams. And like, especially with Rema 2, like two completely different things could be happening. Like, oh, yeah, that guy's in a sci-fi world and that guy's in a fantasy world. So I think <laughs> it, it, it felt cool to see that like, hey, maybe this wasn't wasted. Like people actually do yeah. seem to appreciate this and enjoy this aspect of the game. So you raise a great point that I, you know, honestly, it hadn't clicked with me. I had, I haven't played Remnant multiplayer. I played it single player, you know, and it's, and it for, you know, a co-op game as well. Like it, it's so solid single player as, as well, you know, and all, all the time that I got out of it there too. But it's like the interesting thing that, that hadn't clicked for me, what you just said is like that collectible aspect that is, you know, because if it was just a purely single player game, then what you're saying, Dave, may have come to fruition where it is like, it is just a waste that those folks, you know, what they have to restart a whole new campaign or whatever to get that quest. But the fact that you can collect these quests or jump in and experience other people's worlds or what they've rolled through co-op is is beautiful. Was that a happy accident or was that something that you intended from the start? Um, I think that, that the, the sense that, well, it's funny because me and Ben were playing, was it Dark Souls 2? There was some, oh, Bloodborne. It was Bloodborne, right? Bloodborne, yeah. And, you know, even Bloodborne, which is a game that's completely static, everything's exactly the same. Yeah. There's stuff in that game that might happen to me and that might not happen to you, right? Yeah. And I remember we were, we were like talking to each other on the phone and playing. And he's like, dude, some guy just like put me in a sack and took me to a castle. I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> and there's this dude that just like kicks you and you think you die and he like puts you in a sack. And I think we we're working, we we're working on Remnant at the time. I can't remember, but I think that idea, that idea that like, hey, you could be playing with friends or and, and or talking with friends and they could be experiencing something completely different to you yeah. um, was cool. And I think that that there, it definitely was part of the reason why we did it, right? So that yeah, like right. you could be playing the game like I'm fighting some weird giant guy with spikes in his back. You're like, I don't know, I got a wizard that shoots arrows down on me. And right. even though you're at the same spot in the game, I yeah. think was an important and also how that would tie into well. I guess water cooler moments don't even happen anymore. So it's that, but we talked about like just coming to work and, you know, bullshitting about the game because that yeah. was relevant in room one because we still get to work and like having completely different experiences and how that would. So that's kind of how we thought about it in our mentality. Yeah. But I think, no, that, I yeah, I guess I didn't, I, I never pictured the online aspect of like people going on message boards saying, hey, I have this quest. You want to come in and jump? I guess that was a bit of a, Happy yeah. Like, oh yeah, cool. I guess people would do that. I didn't think I thought more in terms of friends because I always yes, play multiplayer yeah. with friends, right? Like yeah. with Ben or somebody else. But seeing communities kind of revolve around that, where people are like taking through each other through areas, or we had a really big secret in Remnant Two, and people were like, "Hey, I'll take you through the steps to get to the secret. Join my game." Um, that's awesome. that's pretty. That's really cool to see that that higher level community aspect of. Yeah, it's incredible. And like, you know, you mentioned, obviously Remnant has, you know, it's like Dark Souls with guns was obviously the first, the thing that a lot of people said at the start. So there's a lot of comparables there for the Souls-like games or the Souls games, I should say. But that emergent gameplay that you see from the Souls games, you know, obviously it was all over Elden Ring, you know, um, what with like, let me solo her and things like that, right? But then... Um, sure. It's it's really amazing to see that stuff come through in Remnant as well. One thing that I, I'm really keen to ask you here, Dave, as well, for you know the developers on the pod, um, listening to the podcast too, is obviously procedural generation has been like something that you've been interested in for a long time, and something that is it in Remnant too. It's just an astounding achievement. It's one of like, and it feels like the the holy grail of you know um, 
it, this is a very, I'm being very hyperbolic and I'm really giving you a lot of credit here, but like it feels like the holy grail of procedural generation in a sense in that you could play the game and some people may not, you, you know, obviously they would know if they go back through and everything, but like it feels authored, like it's so successfully done and the, the different biomes that can, when you look at them, they could be completely different games as well, a sci-fi game, fantasy game. For, with, the, with the point that you're at now, having done this procedurally gen- procedural generation through Remnant 1, Remnant 2 and previous titles, like, what do you feel is like the, the key to successfully doing procedural generation in a game? I know it's a big question, but like when you think about it from a real high level, what do you think it is that makes Remnant 2 such a success with this procedural generation? That um, I think that like for our game specifically, I mean, I, I kind of, it's funny people say procedural, but procedural generation in my head's like No Man's Sky, right? Like it's yeah, truly procedural. Yeah. Um, I in, I always imagine Remnant is like, here's a bunch of cool game ideas and someone shuffled, like a deck of cards and someone shuffled yeah. the deck of cards and laid a hand out and that's what you got. And because yeah. everything in Remnant is handcrafted, right? Like every boss yeah. is handcrafted. Every point of interest is handcrafted. Every NPC is handcrafted. Um, it actually isn't. It's like a bunch of individually non-procedurally elements um, randomly combined together. Yeah. And I think for us, that's personally, that's more interesting to me. Like I like procedural games, but they can tend to be very generic and repetitive because you yeah. get a lot of random variation, but nothing very interesting. Like you really need yeah. that handcrafted human touch to make something interesting. And so mm. that's really what Remnant's based on. And it's funny because it goes back. We used to play this game called War Request. It's like an old fantasy uh, another game workshop game <laughs> game workshop enough. yeah um but and you know like you'd ra- lay out these random tiles right and then there was like this event deck of cards and so you'd pull yeah. it over once and it's like oh there's an old dwarven prospector in the corner and it's like do you give him 10 gold and you're like sure i'll give him 10 gold oh he gives you a rusty key and then you go in a room and there's a chest and you unlock the rusty key and yeah. you know when we were like 13 we're like this is amazing this is like yeah it's different every time and not really i mean you're gonna get a certain number of events in the deck but yeah. I think Remnant really, for me personally in my head, is, is uh, it's from playing War Request back in the day and going like, I want a game like that on the computer where there's a bunch of cool random things that can happen to me and it, and it changes and randomizes what happens in what order. So hmm. I don't know yeah. if that answers your question. No, I guess the shorter answer is it's not really like truly procedural. And it really is yeah. like a shuffling of a bunch of cool um, handcrafted content. Yeah, and I mentioned this, you know, this concept of like the holy grail of procedural generation. I guess it depends, you know, if we're talking from an engineering perspective, like, yeah, you're right, it's it's fully procedural. But if we're talking from a player's perspective, that like, you know, that that handcrafted elements like well shuffled in a deck and then presented to you in a seamless fashion where it doesn't feel like, you know, the, the man is still behind the curtain, you know, it's sure. like, it doesn't feel like it's being revealed to you. It feels like Remnant does that really well. Ben, tell me about... The challenges of the procedural generation. Tell me about the the things that didn't didn't come together, or the big, and especially like I know you mentioned injectables or things like that, like Remnant One and Remnant Two. What did it take to make the success happen? You know, on the on the ground floor. Well, I think again, you go back to what Dave was saying is trying to to stay within that creative vision of how do we make that happen? How do we, yeah. you know, get these water cooler moments or, or whatever the new term is now with social, with wherever we're at, whatever that yeah. moment is where you can say, uh, you know, I think that the, the cool part was, you know, watching two streamers and they're playing two different games, you know, but that's all yeah. remnant too. And people are like, I've never seen the ravager. I've never seen this dog thing or that that's yeah. out there, this wolf idea or what's going on with this deer or what, where that, and 
that buzz about that was really, really interesting. I think from the development side and, and working through with the, the people is that it was really, once we started seeing how that was coming together, I think was really, you know, doing playthroughs and walking through the environments and seeing how these, how it could start shaping up and getting onto our next biome and the things we learned from the first biome. And, and it's starting to, you know, the team picking up speed just because, okay, we understand now what collectively we need to do to make this happen. Mm. And then coming up with those ideas and saying, this is going to be cool. The archetype system coming online to enhance, you know, the moment to moment gameplay and giving people that, you know, the, the fantasy aspect of now, you know, you've got, you know, crazy weapons that are doing, you know, super cool stuff. And, you know, the, the, I think that that, all those things juggled together, um, coming together, like, you know, as a fruit salad kind of thing to something very, very, you know, enjoyable that you would enjoy. And I think, mm -hmm. again, that's a testament to the, the, the group of people that we have working for us. I can't say that enough in these interviews. <laughs> even, yeah, right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. How do you even, how do you even test for something like that, Ben? How do you, do you develop it with a mind for the fact that it's going to be an absolute shitstorm when it all comes together and you put constraints in during development to help guide you? Or is it, or do I think you just you try kind to of like launch yourself into it head first when you get to that point. I think, you know, if you're going to test for something, you need to give somebody like what's the expectations of what the results of what we're going to see and these permutations. And so you can say, hey, give me a way to just look at the POI so you can spawn a POI or spawn yeah. something and look at it in a vacuum and then put mm -hmm. it together. And now let me see how that plays. And there's mm -hmm. so many different avenues you just need cycles to play through it you just need time to play through it and you know you can mm -hmm. continue and that's you know as much as much qa as we did um which was far more than we've ever done on any other other projects mm -hmm. uh you once you had released that and millions and millions of people are playing that and going through those experiences you know you can say oh wow i had no idea that could happen or nobody's even thought of that before and wow yeah. who would have you know, so I think from that perspective, you know, there's not like a game plan outside yep. of just the cycles you need to just be able to test something that where there's so many random elements that can, you know, change the parameters of what you're expecting, you know, from from that perspective, plus making sure that it's polished enough that, you know, you don't have I'm not walking along and I just fall through the floor, or, you know, a quest rolls or any of these other kind of just low level, you know, hanging fruit kind of things. But overall, in general, I think. Um, from the from our our group is like hey get in there play play the game having the team play the game you know experiencing it and that really starts people getting excited about hey I played the game and this was super exciting you know we had yeah. uh, one of our our, our tech drive director was like man I played this with my son and it was badass and I'm like yeah exactly this is cool you know like that those yeah. are the kind of moments that you just that just jazz you in terms of like you know motivate you to continue moving yeah, forward even though them, right? that's right exactly yeah. and and again it's it's limited because you're not in the studio talking about it every day and you know you have like teams or zooms or whatever uh method you're trying to communicate but overall i think from from our perspective it's hey this is what's in the game try to test for this this is how we want to try to mitigate that um and you know they they do as best as they can from you know yeah. however many people we have Dave, another huge achievement for Remnant 2 is the, the boss fights. You know, it, it's it's just astounding, like, how great some of them are. And like you say, you've got a long history with boss fights with Darksiders and stuff like that. What it, When you set out with Remnant 2 after Remnant 1 and all of your experience, you know, sort of in these <laughs> boss fights are a mainstay of video games and you talk about the importance of mechanics, obviously you've got the shooting down, it feels good, the looting feels good. What was it in Remnant 2 that you really focused on to bring those boss fights home and to have them, you know, obviously have the reception that they've had? You know, it's... it's yeah, I think one thing that's really important for me is that a boss fight's memorable. Like that, you know, there's some element of it that's interesting or unique enough that you could remember about it when you walk away. Now, do you do that 100% of the time? No. Sometimes yeah. a boss fight's 
not always going to leave a lasting impression, but I think if you do that more often than not, then you're in pretty good shape. Um, you know, I will say like Remnant 2 is like the first game I've ever worked on where I actually didn't really do any boss. I, I used to implement like a lot. I think I did most, a lot of the bosses in Dark Side or Remnant 1. Right. I did almost all of them in Darksiders 1. Um, yeah. Quite a few in Darksiders 2. Almost all of them in Darksiders 3. So like I've done a lot of bosses in my career. Which is good because I'm probably running out of ideas. To be honest, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you really get a, like, a, a, a new group of people. Has a limited number of bosses, <laughs> so you know. I think that like I didn't, I didn't do. I mean, I think I worked on one boss partially in Dark Side Remnant yeah. Two, but we had a lot of really good guys that stepped up to the plate and brought a bunch of cool, new, fresh ideas, which I think is really useful. Yeah. You know, fresh new ideas are extremely valuable in game development, and I think yeah. that like yeah. um, you always have the advantage with the sequel where it's like. You know, it's really hard when you have an original IP to explain mm -hmm. to people what the game's about, right? Because yeah. they, and it's funny, you'll get right up to the, you'd be like shipping the game and half the team's like, I don't even know what this game's about because everyone's working yeah. on their own little silo. Yeah, but you don't have that problem with the sequel, right? So people come in and they played Remnant 1 and they're like, I want to do a cool boss life that does this or I like yeah. this from Remnant 1, I didn't want to do something like that. And so that really, that synergy really build, builds upon itself and then you inject a bunch of new blood in there with some cool new ideas and i think you know overall i think i was really proud of the yeah the, just the variety of the boss fights in remnant 2 like i'll put variety in our boss fights up against any game any day like we got some crazy ass shit like big flying dragon butterfly guys and like yeah. weird the interstellar beings i think that it's yeah i think it's good because like there's Dave a giant says, cube that smashes fresh, like, fresh new ideas you know dave Dave comes up with like maybe like to the cue point. Hey man, what if we fought a rolling dice boss? I'm like, fuck it, okay. Let's yeah. think about how that is. And then you take a guy who, who, who say, hey man, what do you think? And and you start the collaboration. And that's the cool part to see, right? Because you have this new talent level coming up with fresh ideas that we would have never thought yeah. of implementing ever in a, t a thousand years. And that's you're mm -hmm. like, fuck, that's pretty fucking cool, man. A lot of people like it. So I think that you have to stay fresh. You have to be accepting to these new ideas and say. You know, hey, this is cool, and a lot of people are going to like this. And it's it's different than what my comfort zone is, and and being able to like come out of your comfort zone, especially from a creative standpoint, and saying, hey, that I can recognize the cool the cool elements of that, and yeah. you know, let's tamper that down a little bit. Let's you know you know change that up a little bit. But it's fine tuning. It's not the larger scope of of making that happen to where mm. where you can say, hey, and we can grow as a studio from that perspective. Well, what a perfect segue, fresh new ideas and growing as a studio and, you know, the new generation of like talented crew at Gunfire and stuff. What's Dave, what's next for Remnant? What's what's next for Remnant 2? What's next for Gunfire? What do you got your eyes well, on? Well, next for Remnant 2 is some DLC that we're working on. So I think we just announced yeah. one, The Awakened yeah. King. So that's coming out on the 14th. But um, yeah, we still got a lot more Remnant 2 in our back pocket that we're working on. Um, yeah, and yeah. I guess the rest I can't really talk about, but yeah, yeah we, <laughs> we are not the hot scoops podcast, so we can know oh, absolutely. <laughs> but plenty of more remnant too. We're 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 committed to continue to work on the game, and as long as people yeah. still enjoy playing it, and you know, as long as we can afford to, we will continue to make content for the game. And um, it's such a fun um, stage of development, the post-launch, like games as a service stuff these days, especially when your title's premium and, you know, you've got multiplayer in there as well. It's like, and it's, I can, like, you know, I mean, our game, Armello, about just like a, you know, digital board game about fighting animals, right? Like, we, had, game. we had endless ideas for that, right? But Remnant, I can even imagine, is just like, you, you must have to 
really force yourself to switch your brain off at night to stop well, thinking about it. It's easy because like you just go through a crystal and it can be whatever world you want. Like it just doesn't yeah. matter. Like Fucking and awesome. that's the one thing I love about the IP is like it just has it literally has infinite potential uh settings yeah. and storylines and bosses and you could just very similar to that Stargate kind of idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, world, right. You know. Hell yeah, guys. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to the two of you. Um, I, You've obviously had a ton of success already with Remnant 1 and Remnant 2, but I wish you the best of success moving forward. Um, you've got something really special on your hands, and with, not just with the game, but with the studio too. So thanks for hanging out. Yeah, thank thank you. you so much. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.